And good morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. We are, as I'm finding my place, we are in the middle, as Kevin said, of a sermon series in, uh, we're basing it out of Ephesians, but it's entitled Waging War. And we're looking specifically at uh, the topic of spiritual warfare. Um, today, we're, Kevin read um, verses 1 through 21. We're actually going to go all the way through 6 9. It all kind of connects, and, and you'll see that as we go through. But um, we've, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, there's no way I'm going to cover every single thing in this text. So if you're looking for uh, an exhaustive uh, exegesis of this text, that's not going to be what this is. Um, we're going we're gonna to hit on um, some really key points in here um, that help us to see um, the reality um, and the danger of spiritual warfare. So the, the Ephesians, uh, the book that this, uh, the, the people that this book was written to, they, they absolutely refused to be outdone in showing honor um, to the Roman Empire. They deeply desired to have a reputation of being loyal and devoted. And that fleshed itself out in their commitment to the Roman civil religion, something we know today as the, the Roman imperial cult. Along with the famed Temple of Artemis that was prominent in Ephesians, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, um, the Ephesians also constructed a temple dedicated to Julius Caesar, uh, who's the, the emperor who's seen in Rome as the father of the fatherland, and it was also dedicated to Roma. Roma is the personification of the Roman Empire, um, who was also seen as a mother figure to the Romans. The Ephesians also built a magnificent temple to uh, the Emperor Domitian. He was a subsequent emperor um, to Julius Caesar. So they built this magnificent temple to Domitian and his family. And the construction of this temple to Domitian um, gave Ephesus the title of Temple Warden. Now this particular title, that of Temple Warden, was one that Ephesus strived to obtain and maintain. In fact, Ephesus and Pergamum, um, they, they kind of had this tit-for-tat battle to see who would be the most prestigious city with that title. The, per, the, the city of Pergamum had the title of Temple Warden for over 100 years until Ephesus built this temple to Domitian. And as a reward for their loyalty and investment in um, Domitian's rule, he awarded this title to Ephesus. Pergamum wasn't about to, to stand for that, though. Fifteen years later, they built a massive temple to a sub subsequent emperor named Trajan. And this move returned the title of Temple Warden to the city of Pergamum. And in celebration, they declared themselves to be twice awarded temple guardianship. Ephesus decided that they weren't going to let them go, let that go that easily, and so they built a temple to the next emperor, and they were also awarded temple guardianship. Okay? But Pergamum responded in kind. They, weren't, they didn't take kindly to Ephesus saying that they were also twice given, uh, twice awarded temple guardianship, and so they decided that they would now be known as the first to be twice awarded temple guardianship. Suffice it to say, loyalty and honor mattered a bit to these cities in Asia Minor. The churches in these cities were not immune to this influence. 
Complete devotion to Rome, particularly to the emperors, was expected. This is highlighted by the fact that Augustus Caesar uh, prided himself as being given perpetual power over uh, Rome, quote, by universal consent, unquote. He was called a son of a god, and upon his death, he was even considered to have become a god himself. So with the emperor as father and Roma as mother, the empire was portrayed as this big, peaceful, happy family. In fact, we get the word patriot and father, um, both of these words from the word patria. And it's a Latin word that was used to unite all of Rome under the emperors who were also known as the fathers or the patria of the fatherland. Keep in, keep in mind this idea of the Roman family as we go, and you'll see that this chapter of Paul's letter is going to undermine all of that. He's going to expose a spiritual battle between worldly allegiance and allegiance to Christ. And so the, the title of today's sermon is The Battle for Our Allegiance. All right, let's get into the text. Take a look at the first two verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right, with the backdrop we just saw, this verse is calling the Ephesians to make a decision. This is very similar to what we see in John's letter to Ephesus in Revelation. He says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So this, this pull toward allegiance to Rome was intense. If you think about it, Christianity in ancient Rome was not like it is today. Christianity was virtually unknown. If anything, it was seen as a, a Jewish sect, just a small Jewish sect that had kind of splintered off. Okay? Those that knew of it likely associated it um, with a man who, in their eyes, was a failed revolutionary and was executed by the state. That's how they saw Jesus. So those who continued to follow the teachings of Jesus would have been seen as pockets of resistance to the benevolent and universal rule of Rome. They would have been seen as enemies to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They were also considered to be atheists because they did not worship the emperor or the Roman gods. So in their context, cultural Christianity would have been completely foreign to them. To belong to Christ meant to be aligned with an enemy of the state. So when Paul's calling the Ephesian Christians not children of Rome, but beloved children of God, He's making a political statement. In the words of Joshua in the Old Testament, he's saying, choose this day whom you will serve. You can serve Rome, and Rome will require your complete devotion and perpetual service lest they crush you. Or you can serve God in Christ, who loved you and gave himself up for you, becoming a sacrifice on your behalf. What is infinitely better but the other is not going to let go without a fight. And here's what we need to understand about these two kingdoms. Revelation 13.2 says, And to it the dragon, namely Satan, gave his power and throne and great authority. It 
refers to the beast, and the beast in Revelation represents worldly power in the form of kingdoms or governments. At the time Revelation was written, that power was held by Rome, and Revelation 12, 17 shows us the dragon's goal. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, without going into too many details about the specifics of Revelation, the woman and her children represent the faithful people of God. Quote, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And this enemy, he stands opposed to all of us. The enemy is at war with us. And really, he doesn't care if you explicitly give your allegiance to him. As long as you give at least a piece of your allegiance to something or someone other than Jesus, he has something to work with. If he can get you to give your allegiance to Rome, or to America, or to money, or to power, or to whatever, he sees that as success. And he may even reward you for dividing your allegiance. That's what the Ephesians were facing. Let's move on. Verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and of Christ and God. Part of Ephesian culture that was also a part of the greater Roman culture was the worship of Roman gods. And for the Ephesians, that, that temple Artemis, the presence of that in their city, Artemis was also known as the mother goddess, that the presence of that temple there was a big part of, of their worship to the Roman gods. And a part of worship to Artemis was temple prostitution. If you remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.16, he says, or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sexual immorality of any kind is offensive to God. And this type of sexual immorality was not only rebellion against the design of God for the intimacy between a man and his wife within the bounds of marriage that God had created. It was also an explicit unification of oneself with the goddess Artemis in an act of worship to her. It's the same type of spiritual adultery that the Israelites were guilty of when they worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations in the Old Testament. And alongside sexual immorality, Paul also brings up covetousness or greed. Law and order were of high priority in Roman society. And it kind of makes sense when you think of the scope of the Roman Empire. At its peak, the Romans occupied nearly two million square miles of land in the ancient world. And so rebellions in a territory of that size were definitely something to be concerned about. And the Romans have methods that they could use uh, to maintain order. Uh, they have the, the obvious penalties. Um, such as Roman crucifixion, that they could use um, to, defer, to deter 
people from rising up against the government, but they also had economic incentives that they could give for loyalty in areas where dissent was probable. As New Testament scholar David De Silva says in his book, Unholy Allegiances, the Romans might strategically introduce luxury items and offer the privilege of Greek and Roman education for the children of local elites in places where there was resistance in order to achieve by such seduction what force could not affect as efficiently. So they were bribing people to stay in order with this, this higher education. Okay. But as, as Dr. De Silva discusses John's writing in Revelation, he adds this, and I think we've got this quote. Yeah, all right, it's, it's a little bit longer. The wealth to be enjoyed by participating in the larger global economy was, as far as John in Revelation was concerned, a dangerous lure towards sharing in the violence and political injustice that undergirded such an economy, as well as sharing in the economic injustice that allowed the resources and produce of the provinces to be siphoned off to satisfy the immoderate cravings of Rome's inhabitants and worldwide elite. John, the author of Revelation, understood long before the modern era that a person cannot share in the profits of domination without also sharing responsibility for its crimes. Come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. So greed or covetousness and spiritual adul uh, adultery are intimately linked. The Romans knew the power of greed. The, their empire was established and expanded with greed as a primary motivation. And instead of encouraging Roman citizens to turn from greed and covetousness, they encouraged them to imitate the fathers of the fatherland by using greed as a motivator to encourage obedience and acquiescence. Look again at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. When we see this in light of all of this background, we can clearly see that this is about allegiance. It's a choice. Will you follow and imitate the father of the fatherland, Caesar, or will you choose to imitate your father in heaven who loves you and sent his son to give up his life for you? It's necessary also to mention that this is the empire that crucified Jesus. The picture here for the Ephesians could not be clearer. These two kingdoms were not compatible with each other. The question is, will you be allegiant to the kingdoms of the world? Or will you align with the kingdom of God? And don't be deceived. The question for us today is no different than it was for the Ephesians. Will you give your allegiance to America in pursuit of all that is the American dream? Or will you be devoted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Paul continues down this road in the next verses. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The choice regarding to whom to be a legion is, is not a flippant matter. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Consider that against the way this chapter started, where those who are legion to God are called his beloved children. Paul minces no words. You are either God's beloved child, or you are a son of disobedience. Neutrality is not an option. He makes it even clearer. We were all once sons of disobedience. That was who we were. And allegiance to the world or to the powers of this world is ultimately allegiance to this kingdom of darkness. Jesus, in John 17, prayed that his followers would be in the world but not of the world. And John tells us that Jesus is the light of the world, that in him there is no darkness at all. And Paul tells us not to become partners with the darkness, to have no part in the unfruitful works of the darkness. He also tells us not to turn a blind eye to the deeds of darkness, but to expose them. But just as the Roman Empire spread across the ancient world, the kingdom of darkness has power and dominion over the entire fallen world. Paul exhorts us in verses 8 through 10 to walk not as sons of disobedience, but as children of light, which produces all things good and right and true. He tells us to try to discern not just whether something is okay for us to do or not, but whether it is pleasing to the Lord. Let me repeat that. Paul tells us not to, to try to discern whether something okay is okay for us to do or not, but to try to discern whether it is pleasing to the Lord. As verse 14 shows, the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of death. But the kingdom of God is kingdom of light. It brings light out of darkness, and it brings life out of death. 5.15 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to the God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This section of the letter would have been seen as a blatant pushback against allegiance to Rome for the Ephesians. A staple of high society in Greek and Roman culture was something they called the symposium. At the symposium, there would be poetry, there would be songs sung, and then these songs would either be of a patriotic or of a crass or indecent nature, and there would also be much food and drink, wine, strong drink. In fact, they would often, in these, in these symposiums, they would drink first on an empty stomach, 
and then they would drink lukewarm water so as to vomit. You can, you can refer to John's letter to Laodicea in Revelation as you consider that one. And then they would commence with more drinking and eating. These gatherings were patriotic gatherings celebrating the benefits of high-class Roman society, and they were worshiping the emperor and Roma. Paul presents a direct alternative. Make the best of that time. Don't participate in that evil. Instead of foolishness and debauchery and wine, be filled with the Spirit and redeem those gatherings to be used for the kingdom of God, not of darkness. Come together, gather together, eat together in the body of Christ. Absolutely. But address one another in your gatherings, not in patriotic songs and crude jokes, but with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. Not the emperor, not the nation, not to Rome, not to America, but making melody to the Lord with your heart, thanking the God and Father, thanking God the Father in the name of our Lord. Hear that? Our Lord, our Master, our King, Jesus Christ. And we don't take advantage of one another, try to one-up one another as they would in these gatherings. We don't try to climb over people on the way up the societal or corporate ladder. Instead, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this picture right here, by the way, is the picture we're striving for in gospel communities here at Redeemer. That's what we're hoping for. So if we're not to unite ourselves with these worldly kingdoms, who demand our utmost allegiance, if we're to have no part of this kingdom of darkness, what should our lives devoted in allegiance to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ look like? Paul's going to lay it out in the next section. Instead of this family of Rome, he's going to present to us the family of God. And it's going to be as revolutionary for the Ephesians and for us as the first part of this passage. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, let's be honest for a second. This next part is going to be really hard. It's, this, this section is frequently used to support male dominance just in general. And if that's what you heard about this passage, please hear me say that this in no way, this passage in no way teaches male dominance. It's, it's actually pushing back against the male dominance that was so prominent in Roman culture. And he's doing it the same way he pushed back against every other abuse of power uh, in the Roman Empire, as he's done throughout this chapter. As Brian talked about in Ephesians 2, the kingdom of darkness operates in the realm of worldly power. Maybe you can think of worldly power as a kind of currency for the kingdom of darkness. And just as money itself is not evil, power itself is not evil, but ruthless pursuit of power and the wielding of power to dominate is evil. 
And it'd be foolish to believe for a second that power doesn't play a role in the home. The amount of power up for grabs does not need to be great for mankind to be drawn to it like moths to a flame. And Paul in this section is again going to flip the power structures. A couple things to be aware of as we enter this section. First of all, the second half of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, starting, starting in the second half of that verse, all the way down through verse 23, is one sentence in the original language. Right? So Paul isn't separating out this section on the family from the rest of the passage. In English, it looks like that, but Paul isn't doing that. Second, there's a list of things, namely, and you can follow along, speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ that flows into verse 23, where Paul tells wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. But all of that, it's a list that flows from being filled with the spirit in verse 18. What that means is that all of this, the entire conversation about the household, is a matter of spiritual warfare. It's a matter of being filled with the Spirit so as to walk as children of the light, taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. One other matter of interest. We're going to see three key, pair, three key pairs of relationships in this section. We're going to see wives and husbands. We're going to see children and parents, namely fathers. And we're going to see slaves and masters. Notice that the first person in each of these pairs is the one that in Roman society would have had a lower social status and lower level of power. But also notice that as Paul is addressing those with social clout, he's addressing the same person in each of these pairs. In an elite Roman household, the husband is also the father, is also the slave master. So there's a juxtaposition of those who are vulnerable and powerless with those who have societal power over them. And we're going to see how Paul instructs each of these. Something that we need to understand about Roman society at this time is that it, it operated on a system of patronage, where there was this category of elites at the top of society, and the rest of society was dependent on being in good standing with um, one of these elites who's known as a patron. We talked briefly about this, um, kind of, when we talked about the head of family being in charge of all of the decisions for the entire family. And Paul understands the dynamic in the culture as he writes um, to the Ephesians. Women had really no status in society. In order to survive, they needed the cover of a husband or father or patron. That was societal, that was cultural, this, this idea of cover. So it should have been no surprise to hear Paul tell wives to submit to their husbands. Paul wasn't, he wasn't intending to abolish the social structures of Rome. And that wasn't what he was after. Instead, he's going to tell those who are in Christ 
to operate within the structures in a very different way. In a way that would subvert the significance of those structures. And this is where the weight of the passage falls. I'm going to pick it back up at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives, submit to your husbands. Got it. That's in line with the cultural and societal expectations in Rome. Nothing new. But here's what the, the New Testament Bible, uh, sorry, the New Bible Commentary says about a parallel passage in Colossians 3. Paul wrote a very similar discourse to the Colossians. The commentary says this, The wives, as free and responsible agents, are asked voluntarily to submit themselves to their husbands, since this is entirely proper. The, the section in Colossians 3, instead of um, asking the Lord, say, in the Lord. And so in the Lord means within the new fellowship of those who own Christ as Lord. Submission points to the wife's calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him exercise his role within the family. It is not an absolute surrender of her will, for Christ is her absolute authority, not her husband. Nor is there any suggestion that the wife is naturally or spiritually inferior to her husband. So if a husband is not leading toward Christ, a Christian wife cannot follow his leadership away from Christ. That would not be asked to the Lord or in the Lord, as it says in Colossians 3. But in a Christian household where the husband is following Christ, the wife submits to that leadership and follows Jesus just as her husband strives to do as well. But contrary to popular opinion, Wives submit to your husbands in this passage is not the emphasis. The husbands get the emphasis. Husbands, who would have been in power, who would have had the authority, give yourself up for your wife, just as Jesus gave himself up for the church. Love your wives in the same way that Jesus did when he cleansed her by washing of the water of the word. Nourish your wife with the depths of the gospel of Jesus. Cherish your wife and remain faithful to her just as Jesus does to the church. Be one with your wife just as Jesus is one with the church. Wait, what did Paul just say? As the husband, I'm supposed to do what? For a first century man in the Roman Empire whom society expected to rule over his household, he was bound to ask, what will my friends think? What will other husbands think if they find out I'll be seen as a feminine? 
Listen to Ezekiel's description of this in Ezekiel 16. You can flip with me there if you want, if you have it. Ezekiel chapter 16. While you're finding it, I'll just read verse 3. It says, And say, Thus says the Lord to Jerusalem. And then he's going to expel on that. We're going to skip down to verse 8. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into the covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, and put bracelets on your wrist, and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, and earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, and silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, and honey, and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, and advanced to royalty. And you were now forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. This is the tenderness and love and care that Paul is calling husbands to. Pay, pay attention there to the affection and the way that the Lord elevates the position of his people. And he's doing it because God designed marriage to reflect this relationship between Jesus and his bride. And he called husbands not to power and domination, but to humility and service. You see it? Paul is flipping the script on the power dynamics of the day. But should we be surprised? Didn't Jesus humble himself to wash the feet of his disciples? Did he not tell us that the least would be the greatest? Paul's bringing all of that teaching here into the family. But he doesn't just do that. He tells husbands that they are to sacrifice themselves for their wives. And living like this likely would have brought much disdain from their fellow citizens. They were openly disrupting the power structures of Rome. But deeper than that, they were disrupting the power dynamics of the kingdom of darkness. And lest we forget, to live a life like this in direct opposition the dynamics of the kingdom of darkness requires a life that is filled with the spirit in verse 18. We don't muster our own strength to stand in direct opposition to the powers of this age. To try would be foolishness. And we'll talk a lot more about that next week. As we move on, we're going to see a similar pattern for exhortations for children and their fathers. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Almost every society imaginable requires that children obey their, their parents. I, I don't really know of any that don't. And Paul doesn't stop there. He tells them that it is right in the sight of the Lord to do so. This, this is right. This is good. He also doubles down on the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, and he reminds them that it is in their best interest to do so. 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But he puts the weight of this again on fathers. Children should obey their parents, absolutely. But fathers, those with authority, must not abuse that authority. Fathers must not create unreasonable demands or petty rules. Fathers should not pit children against one another or exhibit favoritism so as to produce jealousy. Fathers should model, model the, the sorry. Fathers should model the example of God, our Father, who is generous, kind, merciful, just, loving, and patient. And it's the responsibility of fathers, those with authority in the household, to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means that fathers use their authority to point children to the ultimate authority, namely Jesus. It means that fathers don't just take their kids to church and hope that the kids' ministry will teach them about Jesus. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, we talked about the pedagogues in the Roman family who were responsible for the children's education and much of the moral education as well. Paul's not allowing fathers to abdicate this responsibility to hired hands. He's telling them that the rules and model of the home should point their kids to the greatest and second commandment, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And fathers are to model that for their kids by loving their kids and also by loving their wives as Christ did the church and laid down his life for her. In short, Paul is telling fathers to obey Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. At the end of the day, Paul is telling fathers that they are not free to treat their children like servants or to ignore them or to abuse them. Fathers are to be filled with the Spirit as they engage with their children, using their authority in the home to bring their kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in hope that they will love and trust and follow Him. And finally, He comes to the last members of the household, bond servants. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back, uh, back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Paul essentially tells bondservants, to work as though they're working for the Lord, not for men. He tells them to work hard and to work well, and he, he extends comfort to them, telling them that no matter how they're treated, they will be rewarded by the Lord for good work done for his sake. But again, he is going to put pressure on the one with power in the household. Masters, do the same to them. Reward your servants for good work just as the Lord does. In other words, masters, treat your servants as you would want to be treated. You don't want to be threatened, so don't threaten. 
You are even the real master anyway. You submit to the master of all just as your servant does. And the master of all isn't partial to you over your servant. Please tell me, after reading this, how could a master in good conscience continue to own slaves? Everyone wants to be free. So if we're to treat others the way that we want to be treated, how can we enslave anyone? And again, all of this completely reorients the conversation about power. All of it is directly countercultural, and none of it, none of it can be done outside a life that is filled with the Spirit. So what do we take from all of this? We're called to take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus. Every part of that cuts against the grain of our flesh. Our natural instinct is to chase power and prestige and influence and wealth and comfort and ease and fame. Our flesh is naturally selfish and self-centered. And the enemy will keep dangling these carrots in front of us as long as any one of them can keep us distracted and ineffective. He just wants our eyes diverted from Jesus. Paul's antidote, he repeats in a verse in 5.2 and in 5.25, Christ loved us or loved the church and gave himself up for us or for it. So walk in love, verse 2, and walk in wisdom, verse 15. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, verse John 3.16. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a battle raging for the souls of men. Our defense is the love and wisdom that is imparted to us as we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Whereas Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ as your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If our lives are hidden in Christ, then the enemy has no play for our souls, only for our affections. But he wants to exploit those affections and ruin both our lives and the lives of our fellow image bearers. If we have been given power and authority in this world, we are to use that power for the building up of the body and for pursuing justice and seeking mercy. We are to walk in love, the very love that compelled Jesus to give himself up for us, that we might be given the right to be called children of God, to be a part of this bride of Christ, and to be bondservants of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise of his infinite glory. May the enemy shudder when he sees the love of Jesus flowing through us as we lay down our power, our authority, and our very lives for one another. Let's pray. Father, this is so hard for us. Everything in us just wants, wants power, wants to, to be able to rule the way we want, wants to, our lives to, to go the way we want. We want our lives to be about us, Father. That is our nature. That is, that is a pull in each one of us. 
Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be able to lay that down. Father, that we would pursue your kingdom and reject allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. I pray that we would flee from evil and that we would run to your throne, run to the light, run to Jesus, that we would keep our eyes firmly fixed on him, that we would walk in love, and we would lay down our lives for one another just as Jesus did for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.